0: Because this is, this is another thing, I, mean, people, I, I have this conversation with people and they come to see me, whose problem is this? And so I, I'm very clear that if, if you don't think there's a problem, then nothing else matters. If you come to me, in fairness, the vast majority of people come to me and they know it's a problem. Mm. But sometimes I get family members telling me it's a problem and the person thinks it isn't a problem. Now whether it is a problem or it isn't, the person is king. Welcome to The Social Fabric Podcast.
1: I'm your host, Andreas Splendori, and this week my guest is Dr. Garrett McGovern. Garrett is the founder of the Priority Medical Clinic, the first medically-led private outpatient alcohol and drug addiction treatment program in Ireland. Garrett is passionate about his work and the need for change in policies, for example in the area of decriminalization. His views and his straight-talking attitude are not always popular with politicians and colleagues. That doesn't stop him from putting forward his views on evidence-based approach. You can find more episodes on socialfabric.ie, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Only a few seconds of the music choices is played in this podcast for rights reason. You can find all the songs on the Social Fabric playlist on Spotify. This programme is also broadcast weekly on Dublin's Near FM ninety point three on a Monday afternoon, 4 30 pm. Please share, download, or review. It's the only way independent podcasts like this have a chance to survive. If you want to get in touch with the program, suggest a guest, or a topic that I should be discussing, please email me at infosocialfabric.ie. And just one more thing my very first live podcast will be on the 30th of January 2020 in the Whale Theatre in Greystones. Tickets are now available on whaletheatre.ie. Thank you. Can I call you up, oh Alice, on a night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk all while Sit and talk a while. But anyway, so I'll uh, keep it short, well, as short as possible and as long as possible. But I think it was quite important to give everybody a bit of a platform to see what, what they do and why they do it. And, and it's been an interesting process. and. There's a lot of podcasts out there, but uh,
0: but a little different. This is a good one though. The this drug policy stuff. It's uh, it's got a lot more coverage in Ireland in the last certainly the last three years, but I'd say probably the last five or six years more than it ever has. Yeah. It was sort of on the back, the back kind of back in the background, but now. Uh, it's becoming a little bit, I wouldn't quite call it mainstream, but it's more mainstream than it was, that's for sure. Mm. Like, for instance, someone like me saying drugs should be legalised, that would be front-page news uh, once upon a time. It's not front-page news anymore. It's it's a fairly reasonable uh, opinion to hold. It's Mm. not as left-wing anymore. Uh, Still, there is an element of Conservative Ireland and... uh, we fight against that, you see a lot of it on Twitter. Um, I got a text from, uh, or uh, probably a DM from Lynn Ruan the other day, saying, uh, God God, love your patients on Twitter, because I don't know if you've been looking at Twitter recently, there's a lot of um, real negative, I, I don't know whether they're fake accounts or whatever they are, but they're people basically saying horrible things about drug users. Mm-hmm. And you know people often wonder why do I respond to them? I have a rule uh well, nobody would know the rule, but if, if you don't get personal with me, in other words, you don't make a judgment on me, which is you know something that's horrible um i i'll I'll go tell to tell with you because you're debating with me and it doesn't matter how horrible your view is uh even if you use the j word mm-hmm. I'll still engage with you and I have a view on this that is that we look at, we're going to get nowhere by running away from debating with people. You know, this idea of you've upset me. You know this, I hate to call it the snowflake kind of era, but this idea of, oh, that's insulting. Uh, get, live in the real world. There's a lot of insulting stuff going around there, and none of us are perfect. We always like to think we're, that our view is the most important view, the most perfect view, and I'm right and everybody else is wrong. I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I, I don't feel that my view is the right view. I just think that when something like our drug policies are manifestly not working the way they should, I like to think that maybe we should change it. Maybe we should look at something different. Maybe we should look at a different approach. Now, most people who are conservative about drugs think that uh, if you take someone like Peter Hitchens, who hates cannabis, his view is that the drug law, the reason the drug laws don't work is they're not enacted. In other words, we're not harsh enough. We need to be like the Philippines or Russia or, you know, uh, Singapore. We need to be in an era where you get your hands cut off or you get locked up for, 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 for a very long time just for, for taking drugs or in possession of drugs. And, you know, that 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 that's not true, you see, is that it, this idea that our cannabis laws in Ireland, I'm saying cannabis particularly, you could say our drug laws, is that our cannabis laws are enacted, and people say, Well, they're 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 it's 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 de facto decriminalized. Well, my answer to that is, Well, if that's the case, and I don't believe it is the case, not de facto decriminalized, well, then let's make it official, hmm. let's make it official, let's stop guessing because I don't think it can be um discriminatory. Like, it's up to a guard whether you get uh, a conviction, it's up to Whether you get arrested, a guard says, no, I'm going to let you off. And then another guard says you're going to get arrested. I think, no, we've got to get away from that. So although personally, I believe that we should look at a regulated market, a properly regulated market for probably all illicit drugs. There aren't many of them, really. The big ones are heroin, ecstasy uh, and cocaine. They're the three major sort of types of drugs that people are taking. Heroin is simple to regulate, really. If you look at Switzerland and you look at uh, countries where they give people, injecting drug users, heroin on prescription, they come into clinics and get it. It's a bit rigid, but it means that they get a clean supply of morphine and they're able to inject it in a safe environment, which is different, a little bit different than injecting rooms where they bring in their own drugs. Cocaine probably is a little bit tricky, but ecstasy should never have been illegal, in my opinion. And if you look at any of the work David Nutt did, I mean... David, if you know him, is a psycho pharmacologist. Um, he's a doctor, he was a psychiatrist actually. And he was on the advisory committee for the misuse of drugs in the UK. And he ended up getting fired because he wrote a paper that said um, horse riding accidents kill more people than ecstasy every year. And of course, the. Um, the Labour government at the time uh, said, no, you're sending out the wrong message. And they sacked him. Now You're talking about a very brilliant man. They'll never get a, a, a guy as brilliant as him. But he, what he was trying to say was, he says, he was trying to basically say that we, we talk about drugs as if they're these terrible, evil things, but we never really make any efforts to make them safer. So with horse riding, there are deaths, but it be even more deaths if there was no helmets or, you know, protective clothing or, or whatever. It could even be worse if it wasn't regulated. We don't ban horse riding. And he was trying to make that point, but it was lost on the, on, on the government. And the government in the UK felt that our electorate don't want to hear that message from him. He's, he's a, 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 a liberal lefty. And he just wants all the kids to use drugs we've got to get away from this kids are using drugs mm. young people, i mean i said it that night before, they? yeah
1: and uh, you said it that and that night that um with the echo chamber podcast the live yeah it, like it was very clear that um the age of drug use is low you know starting 10 12 14 15 but mm-hmm. as somebody made a point i think it was martin made a point that night that that was always the case and so you you guys were making a point we haven't really made much of a difference in the last 20, 30, 40 years, no. whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. so tell me something. Have you thought of some of the songs?
0: Well, I mean, look, there's, there's lots of songs. I'm a big 60s lover of 60s music. Okay. So, I love the Rolling Stones, I love the Animals, I love the Kinks. Um, funny enough, um, strange enough, despite all that, I, I like that Frank Sinatra song. That's life. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I just well. do like I, it. It sums it up really for, for all of us, I think. If you listen to the lyrics of that song, you know uh riding high in April shot down in May. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. You know, life can be fucking shit or yeah. it can be good. And sometimes when it's going well for you you think um, you know nothing can go wrong. And when it goes bad for you, everything goes wrong. You don't you you, you kinda of don't think anything can go right That's life that's life That's what all the people say
1: You're riding high in April down in May, but I know I'm gonna change that tune when I'm back on top, back on top in June. I said that's life, that's life, and as
0: funny as it may seem,
1: I had a couple of questions to ask you. So, obviously, your, your main thing is sensible drug policies and arm reduction, that's the big. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and we're in your clinic here. You you set this up a few years ago, in 2011, 30? 2011 yeah. thirteen, eleven. Eleven. Um, are you specifically um look after people with addiction in here? Yeah, that's 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 it. It's not a just. It's not a AGP plus.
0: No, no I, I don't. Specific. I don't. Uh, the only time I do GP work is. Um, is in the context of addiction, so somebody comes in with a chest infection and they need an antibiotic, no problem. I'll, I'll do whatever it is, but I don't I don't do general practice okay. as a standalone though.
1: And uh, so, like I know you've been established since ninety eight, but why why the need? You're the first clinic in Ireland to do this particular.
0: Yeah, I probably am the first. Um, well, there was a place called One Step Clinic that I opened either shortly after me, but it's closed down now. Um. To be honest with you, I th- I actually opened this clinic by fluke, mm. if the truth be told. I I was treating so just a little bit of my background. Yeah. I was working um or I and I'm still working in the HSE treating heroin users on methadone treatment. And you know, they come in and they get their prescriptions and they see sometimes see counsellors and other people. Uh which helps them with different things like housing and stuff like that. And um, I also treat people on methadone in general practice which is sort of slightly separate to the HSE and I had my premises in a little cottage up near Marley Park and the 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 land that that cottage was on was getting developed and so I had to leave and when I left I needed another premises Mm -hmm. and my father because he's been in property over the years was on the lookout for somewhere locally and he found this place, but this place was far more expensive. I bought this building and I owned the other building, but but the other building was like really self-contained, very, very straightforward, no real expenses. Mm. And then I bought this building. This was completely renovated. inside, So this became a building that I bought, but it became a monster to a certain extent because I realized I couldn't survive here on what I was doing up here. I needed to bring in extra income. So... I literally had to invent a way of paying the bills and, and and trying to get an income stream. I never I never set out to open this as an additional thing. Mm-hmm. That sounds strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, I kind of went into it kind of in a way a little bit blind. I didn't realise this was, was what it was. Uh, and I also bought this building right at the peak of the boom, or the yeah the boom, right just as it was about to collapse. So you can imagine. And and in a strange sort of way, I wouldn't be here if. I had to wait another six months to get money from the bank to open this because I wouldn't have got the loan. They weren't giving money yet. Mm. So that's how I started here privately doing it. And I literally built this up myself in terms of now it is what it is. It's still a small business, but and it's really set I do have some other therapists who come in sometimes, but the bulk of the patients here will be seen by me. And um it's so so you know, in in a way in a way, I was probably better off in the little place because mm-hmm. I was able to work a four-day week um, and it was self-contained, whereas here I'm forced to kind of run a business. But having said that, I kind of established a, a kind of a, a business that I knew nothing about and, and there was no real model for it really, to be honest with you, in terms of um, things. So it's all private. It's all therapy. It's all kind of spending time with people and talking things through and try to detox them and or do whatever I have to do with them. A lot of it's alcohol, um, but I do get uh, some drugs. And I do sometimes treat young people. This is where the drug policy stuff comes in. I do sometimes treat young people who come to me because the, they're in front of the courts for possession of cannabis. And I always find them difficult to treat because they don't necessarily have a problem. And they're usually young. They're not, Now, I don't treat young with an 18s. I usually, I usually advise them to go to adolescent services, which is... 18 or under. Um, But I've I've treated people who say to me, look, the judge wants me to give up cannabis and I don't want to give up cannabis, but, you know, he's going to put me away. He wants a, you know, urine test and stuff. And I said, well, that's not really how I operate. I mean, if you have a problem, you have a problem. If you don't, you don't. I don't like dealing with those cases because I just don't, I don't think it's fair to put somebody through rehab they don't need. It's stupid. Mm. I mean, the guy... Wouldn't be here if if cannabis was decriminalized. Yeah, and that's the the, the whole thing about the
1: with you and Tony and and, uh, and uh, the decrim. Like it's very much about making it a health issue, right? That's it's a health issue because mm. I think you said uh, even um, before you said it's not about the drug; it's about the person. So it doesn't matter whether it's cannabis or mm. any, of the other, you know, alcohol, gambling, whatever it is. It's it's the person needs to be treated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, then, and the other thing is, and Tony has agreed to this. Tony and Aon and Reardon, like, we've all played this thing about the health issue. But most of them, it isn't a health issue. It isn't even a health issue. It's mm. just a drug use issue. Like, we don't say to people, if you have three pints a week, it's a health issue. Mm. It isn't a health issue. So why is it a health issue if you take, say, you know, even if you take cannabis every day and you don't feel it's a problem? Because this is, this is another thing. I, mean, people, I, I have this conversation with people when they come to see me. Whose problem is this? And some I, I, I'm very clear that if, if you don't think there's a problem, then nothing else matters. If you come to me, in fairness, the vast majority of people come to me and they know it's a problem. Mm. But sometimes I get family members telling me it's a problem and the person thinks it isn't a problem. Now, whether it is a problem or it isn't, the person is king. The person who comes to see me is their opinion... Mm is the most important opinion here. And I know a lot of people criticize me for saying, they say, ah, yeah, but, you know, you're just believing anything a patient tells you and, you know, what about the poor family? I said, yeah, but you don't get me. Is that, I I, I have the greatest sympathy if family have to deal with addiction and stuff like that. But if the person here doesn't believe there's a problem, then I can't do anything for them. Hmm. And then sometimes there isn't a problem at all by any standards and yet they're forced to come to see me. So, there's got to be a problem before you feel you're going to do anything. Because what we'll end up doing if we go down... I hate... I, I'm very much in favour of the Portugal route, um, but I, I hear things like dissuasion committees, you know. So you get this committee dissuading you from taking drugs. Yeah. Why? Well, If your drugs aren't a problem to anybody, why, you just, why go to a dissuasion committee? Mm-hmm. But in fairness, I think the way it really operates in Portugal is I think they realise that. Yeah. I'm getting that impression that they say, look, if you've got a problem, fair enough. And you know, they let them they let them go. But there's none of this stuff that we're getting at the moment, which is three strikes. Yeah, I heard that. That's yeah. stupid stuff. You know? <laughs> Speaking of the song just out of the hatch, what would you put, play next and why? I like Lola by the Kings um, because for years I didn't know what the lyrics meant. And now <laughs> I do realise what the lyrics mean. <laughs> And um, when I listen to that song now, I just laugh. <laughs> I don't know why. And I know we're in an the, in the era of LGBT and all this all this sort of stuff, but I still laugh there, you know. And that's what Lola's is about. Because it? it's such a, it's such a nice song, and yet, you know, it's... Uh... And there's another song, which is not one of my favourite songs, but again, Misinterpreted Lyrics uh, is uh, Every Step She Takes by uh, Sting. Again, it's, uh, you know, Vince stalked. You it's know serious. it's unbelievable and Sting has often talked about that song and said uh, people think it's uh, you know it's love well, fair enough if that's what it means to you but that's not what I meant when I did it see you know?
1: and um, just a little bit about how you do it here because uh, again uh, I, I do, I'm a great believer it is from the person and you do a lot of cognitive and behavioral therapy mm. so if I come into you with any addiction really and mm. uh, are heroin addiction right? you don't treat heroin addiction here
0: I kind of I I do treat heroin addiction here but I I don't do it privately because it's it's the treatment for it is what we call opiate substitution treatment which is methadone and buprenorphine and again it gets bad press but those treatments are free and I I always had a dilemma with her because I've got patients who are on that who come here it's just not privately sure um and they, they're the very first patients actually who got treated here because they came from my other clinic i never did private work up there mm. and i always said that that um i always remember when because uh, i have a guy who 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 another guy who pays rent um and he 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 brought his patients down he was up there kind of a uh, sort of sublet and spaced him and one of the patients um came in when it was nearly finished she was the first person to see it i think she even saw saw the finished product before i did she was walking by because she lived locally and she said to, I think my father was here at the time, but she wouldn't have known it was my father and a few workmen. And she looked at this place and said, um, how are we getting treated in a nice place like this? I mean, it's, I, it, it, this can't be true. This is, this is how disenfranchised she felt. She says, um, I mean, where it was up in the little cottage was nice and homely, but it's nothing like this. And I always said that the first people I would treat down here, because I, I, to be honest with you, when I started doing a business was, I didn't know what I was doing. I I didn't know what was out there and knew nothing about the private business. So, I got a website together and I you know you get you get a bit of a reputation you know all that sort of stuff. But at the time I I said to my patients, oh you're you know I gave them the address and down they came and in 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 they went. And uh, I'm very strong in that sort of stuff that I realized that you can be very guilty treating people publicly and treating people privately differently. And there's no doubt that privately get more of my time because I just have two big numbers publicly. But the one thing I would say about the heroin is I, I, in the early days I tried to do it privately but I I, I felt uneasy about it because the medication does the work. And uh, I, I I, said, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, could I do counselling with them and charge them? So I said, no, I'm not doing that. So what I do now is... um. I only have a certain amount of places for heroin on, on that scheme um, and obviously if one of my patients detoxes I always make sure they come back they, they won't be waiting for treatment but I don't really take new patients on I don't do it privately I don't bring people in and put them through programs and stuff like that so that's the only reason I don't do heroin here in the private clinic I just don't feel happy about and plus you know, I don't mean to be judgmental I never would be but there's a lot of people who are on heroin and they're, they're, they're not. They don't have a lot, an awful lot of money anyway. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who come to to see me who are alcohol dependent usually have means, True. you know. Um. And um,
1: so you you're you're a qualified doctor uh, GP. Uh, Any other special specialization? Or
0: no, my 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 main postgraduate training was all addiction. I did okay. a master's in Kings and then last year actually I did more exams, just as an international exam I did, but it's all addiction. So, um, I, and I would have done in my Kings training, a lot of stuff around CBT and stuff like that. So, uh, I didn't even do postgraduate, uh, GP training. I, I, when I left college within about, um, two and a half years, I was doing addiction. Whereas most people went through for years and years and years and did general practice for years, I didn't. I did a lot of GP locums, but I went straight into addiction. In fact, I went in at the hard end in, in a lot of ways because there's no training. And there's still no training, very little training. It's poor training, I would say.
1: I guess my question is um, so you do both, uh, if you want, a, a psychotherapy type of approach, uh, cognitive, uh, cognitive behavioral and. The medical. Yeah,
0: exactly. I think my approach to this is, uh, first of all, I like to sort of, I, I like simple treatment um, because I I don't understand complicated things any more than anyone else does. So I like it nice and simple. So when somebody comes to see me, um, I usually see them for an initial appointment and I talk through their problem before they even start any treatment. And I, tr- I try and I realize that I don't have, a, there's an expertise I don't have, and that is I don't have knowledge of the patient. Um, so I, they, I have expertise in all the other aspects of treating it, but not not in knowing them. And knowing them is is something that you have to learn fast. So when I meet them, uh, I try and get a feel initially, and it's only about half an hour. So they come in and they see me for half an hour, and then I, let, I give them some information and they go away. Um, and the approach I kind of take to this is, um, why are you here? Like, what, what, what is it? What, what's you know what's the main reason you're here? What are you worried about? Because, you know, you could argue just keep doing what you're doing. And they'll always have a reason, whether it's they're in debt, whether they ended up in hospital and got some complication, uh, whether their relationship is going to end uh, or whatever. And and I always say um, that, well, th- they're very important, those reasons, because you're going to need that as a reference point when things get a bit difficult for you because what happens with people is they can get better for a while and then they slip back in and I don't like people slipping back in so you need some something to anchor it and I find that that reason you always need one good reason but it doesn't matter how many reasons you have but you need at least one in other words some, some people say to me oh I'm coming here because the family are giving me grief uh, I say that's not going to fly um don't don't come here if you feel you have to come here because you won't, you won't last because you won't believe in it. Mm-hmm. So when we do that and then they say, yes, I'd like to do some work with you and stuff like that. The way I, you know, I usually start off with an assessment and then we get through and we do some blood tests and blood tests aren't absolutely necessary. We just do baseline blood. And then we kind of do a lot of work around, um, and this is very simple, um, around what actually happens psychologically when you're in the throes of an addiction. So it could be cocaine. I need to understand, is it a social relationship with cocaine or is it a, it's in solitude? Is it on your own? And a lot of, a lot of the time, I'm more often than not nowadays, particularly I, I'm treating older population of people. So I'm treating people uh, who use cocaine or in their 40s and a lot of them, it isn't a social relationship, it's, it's during the daytime. Uh, And I need to understand what's going on there because that's just... You kind of wonder, why would someone take it during the daytime? So you you, you begin to talk to them. You begin to realize they're they're struggling with stuff. And they're struggling with life. And they're kind of medicating themselves. It's not quite medicating themselves, but it's a bit like that. Mm. But then once they get an addiction to cocaine, they're not medicating themselves anymore. Cocaine is driving the addiction. So cocaine will do it all on its own. And if you say, well, if, if cocaine could talk and you said to cocaine listen um this you've got this guy addicted now um do you want to make him more addicted i'm going to bring in some trauma historical trauma i'm going to talk about uh, the bank debt cocaine would say back say listen you're more than welcome to come in and make this life guys this guy's life a misery but i'm doing it all on my own at the moment so cocaine once you develop a, i'm just picking cocaine could be any addiction but once you develop an addiction to cocaine uh, and you're taking it every day, and you become dependent on it. And it is a psychological dependence. It's not. It's not quite the same as alcohol and things like Valium and uh, heroin, um, which are physical when they get really, really, bad. But it is very psychological. Although I don't think it's totally unphysical with uh, with with thing, but it's all it's often viewed as a psychological addiction. A lot of people don't know how they can stop it. Like, how am I going to stop this? Um, so when I start off treating them I say well the early interventions are are, are not psychological at all they're physical so where, where do you get the cocaine where does it come from I don't mean specifically I don't know who your dealer is but says, oh yeah I have a guy I ring okay. do you know do you know his number off by heart have you memorized his number he goes no I said well first get get the number out of your phone and sometimes they say to me um, I can't I said, why? Because um, I, I I owe him money. So I, I've got contact with him. So I owe him money. So I can't cut that tie. So that's I understand. So we talk about how he's going to service the debt. Um, so the, the early interventions is to try and create a bit of distance between you and cocaine. It's not very effective, I have to say. It's not as effective as the second part of treatment, which is psychologically looking at cocaine differently. So we talk bit about why what is it about cocaine that makes people want to take cocaine and, and, and what you'll notice after a while is is that the reason that they wanted to take cocaine is now gone because now they're dependent you don't need a reason anymore you're getting dependent so you just instinctively do it um, and that's difficult for people because the anticipation of anticipation of using cocaine becomes a high, not the cocaine use itself that's a bit of an anticlimax. But they can't stop doing it, and uh, so they need skills to be able to deal with that. So they need a bit of uh, time away from that drug. Um, You know, they want to get off for forever. And I, I I know patients can be "Oh, I never want to see coke again." I say, "Yeah, but you will see coke again. It's going to happen." So stop treating it as an all-or-nothing drug. This is one of the problems with abstinence approaches, where people uh, only concentrate on abstinence. They'll say to the patient. You've got to stop cocaine and that's it. So we're not going to talk about cocaine. I talk about cocaine a lot in that room upstairs. A lot. So even when they're off I talk about it a lot because they need to be ready for it if it arrives. So if we just talk about, don't mention the war, and the war arrives, and you're not ready for the war, you're just going to use it. But there's going to be no level of how much you use. You're going to go straight into it. So I talk about that phenomenon of slipping. And that slipping is a perfect, natural part of treatment. It's not that I'm saying it's okay to slip, I'm not giving you a green card to slip, but it happens. And what you've got to try and do is you've got to understand what happened that you slipped. And the more you understand it, the more you get are able to develop the skills to deal with it. So so you try and get strategies so that you psychologically don't believe there's anything in it anymore for you for cocaine. But there are other things at play. So there's things like low mood. There's things like stress and anxiety and there's things like historical things that have happened to you or things in your life. And people don't realise that getting off cocaine isn't just about getting off cocaine. It's about dealing with other shit in your lives because there are certain things, I call them risk factors. Now, family members call them excuses. So you hear, often hear the word, oh, he's just making an excuse. And I said, well, I don't see it as an excuse. I see it as a risk factor. So it, we work on the risk factors. I don't call them excuses. So if a risk factor is stress and every time someone gets stressed they go out they ring the phone they go out and get cocaine you've got to deal with stress but cocaine doesn't need risk factors this is the other thing so you've got to deal with the risk factors that you know about but there's other times where it seemingly just comes out of the blue and you want to do it but there's still a risk factor there Mm -hmm. and the one thing i always say about people who've been off cocaine is everybody who's been off cocaine for a while and then takes cocaine will always think about cocaine positively the image in their head will be one of how nice it's going to be because they remember they remember this this phenomenon of euphoric recall they remember how nice it was, and when you know what that buzz is in your head, you can make that buzz even bigger than you want it. And once you do that, you begin to become and this is classic craving. You 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 start then planning how you're going to get it. So you've got to, you've got to when you're off cocaine for a while, you've got to keep cocaine at arm's length so that when you Are feeling a little bit low on yourself, or you're feeling, "Mm, this could be nice. You know that it's not the positive imagery you're thinking of. You're thinking of the carnage, and I always say to people, think of the worst time ever on cocaine, where you know you went missing for days. You know, I had one guy I remember, and he used to uh, book into a hotel for about five days with, I'm talking, just incredible amount of cocaine and he used to drink and he would just stay in there and take it and uh, I've had I've had a number of people kind of like that they go missing for days and then they spend the next week in a dark room and uh, it's a very dark place to get to I can tell you
1: Wow well, um, just give it a title of another song and I want to ask you a couple of more questions
0: any song? My Generation The Who, the who yeah. Fabulous yeah yeah and why? Um, because um, I don't think they ever listened to those lyrics. Society never listened. <laughs> and that whole mod movement was all about, you know, feeling on the margins, you know. And uh, we still have. And I think if we'd have got that right, we would have less of a problem with this whole drug drug thing. In other words, we 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 understand why people take drugs. People don't understand why people take drugs, and you can see it on twitter and the journal.ie comments section when people talk about people who take drugs um they talk about it in very disparaging pejorative language you know like they use the j word they call people who use cannabis stoners um it's 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 misunderstanding
1: but that—that that that was your uh, another question for you, and I know you—you you, you mentioned even uh, before, and I read some stuff. It's humanizing the person. So we you were talking about this guy in bed in a hotel room for five days. Mm-hmm. It's a dark place. That person, is a mother, as a father, is a son, some, is somebody's, somebody's. It's a human being that yeah. is is down in a dark place for whatever reasons. Now, I'm not saying that every single person out there is a saint. There are the bad guys out there, but doesn't necessarily need to be somebody's doing drugs or Absolutely. and that that's very much what you you and Tony and Don and all mm-hmm. trying to to to, to 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 tell us look there's a person there that needs help and how do we get help and that uh, narrative online is a disaster because people just catch get the warriors the keyboard warriors they get really Really strong on on the behind a behind a uh, laptop, and then uh, they wouldn't say boo to anybody, you know. But how do we change that? How do we change? Uh, uh, you know, say the my generation, if we listened, but we don't listen. So what do we do?
0: Well, you see, if you think about it, um, you must remember that we 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 have society that's operating away, and we all have disparate views on things. So you have people who are very, very conservative about drug policy. You have people who are quite liberal about drug mm. policy. You have people that want to change it. You have people that don't think it's strict enough. And then you have a whole lot of policies around other things. But the reality of it is is, is that none of us have control over that policy. Mm. The government have control over that policy. Mm. And the government make the decisions. And they seem to make the decisions, the same decisions all the time. All the time, they make the same decisions. And the same decisions are that they're, you know, you often hear uh, Leo Veradker or Simon Harris, we have no intentions, like if you mention cannabis decriminalization, we have no intentions of legalizing cannabis. It's all very angry. And, and what they're doing there, they, they're, they're appeasing a conservative subsection of Irish society and assuming that's what the, the, the electorate wants. You know higher walls more sniffer dogs more helicopters make the streets nice and safe when we know that all those things cost money and they don't work so we we have a very very high mortality rate in this country relative to other eu countries and people will have their own views on that and say oh, well we collect information differently than other countries but we we're not doing a great job of you know we're 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 talking about i think You know, when you look at the figures in relation to people who are dying from drugs, you know, there's somebody every day, two people every day, who are coming a cropper. And uh, uh, that's not to to talk about the substantial number of people who become unwell or who are in jail because they shouldn't be in jail or have had their lives ruined. And it's all because of the drug policies. So the drug policies isn't going to be decided by us. And if you look at the last five... Years, we've been talking a lot about a more enlightened approach. Well, I would see it's a more enlightened approach, but some people would disagree with me. But nothing's actually changed. The The, the, the Misuse of Drugs Act 1977 hasn't changed. still the same Misuse of Drugs Act. There's been a few little variations of it, but drugs are still illegal. They're still criminalised. And as you can see from this recent Oireachtas report that was headed by Gareth Sheen, he wants it not decriminalized. So we're not going anywhere. And then, I mean, I don't want to get into a big debate about medicinal cannabis, but we have a similar thing going on with medicinal cannabis. Nothing has actually changed. So the question is, how do we change it? We've got to change the mindset of politicians. And, you know, maybe we're going in the right direction. Perhaps we are. But the politicians still, you know, there aren't too many Aon or Irvans. There are a few people in there. But the main parties, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fail, they want drugs criminalised, and probably labour. But you know, mm. and why is that?
1: Why do they want to the
0: criminalise? like policies? you know, there's a lot of people that are cynical and say you know it keeps the police in business, and uh, you know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of theories about that. But I, I don't think I. It's, it's just my own view. Um, I, I think that that politicians are, there are some of them. Ones that you wouldn't think, who privately at the dinner table or when they're with their friends think that, you know, what are we doing here, uh, criminalising drug users? But in public, they won't say that. And I think probably because they want to get back and get elected again. And I I think the, you know, we're not talking about politics now, but the electorate system sickens me in many ways because it seems to me that people will say anything to get elected again. Not all of them, but a lot of them will. They'll do any Like if you look at, say... um, Today, now, I don't know, I haven't been looking at the news, Maria Bailey now is going to be thrown out of the Fianna Gael party, essentially. She's not going to be on the next ticket for the... election. Like, I mean, I look, I don't know Maria Bailey. Um, I, I do know that her father died uh, recently. She's had a tough time. Whatever she did is probably in the kindergarten, compared to some of the atrocities that, that, that has been committed of me. And as you can see, what's happening is, if she does get sort of oosted, the she's getting thrown under the bus because it suits other people because what they're afraid of is they're afraid that they themselves will get criticised by keeping her there and they don't like that so these are unpopular decisions the drug, the drugs thing but as you can see my own profession are very very conservative they want drugs criminalised some of them don't but they, they, they like, let's be real about it Andrea there aren't too many people on Twitter medics talking about drug legalisation I don't know anyone in Ireland. Mm. I I might be the only one. I will <laughs> yeah, be very, the only one. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's not very popular, you know. You don't, yeah. It's not very popular with the majority. Exactly. <laughs> Give me another song
0: to throw in and I want to ask you a question about something um, else. Uh, Money by The Beatles. I know it wasn't an original. The Beatles or... Yeah, uh, The Beatles okay. version of Money, yeah. Oh, I like yeah. that song. Yeah, they, did, they didn't write that song, but uh, I like it. I like it because it was a, a cynical attack. Um, I think it was EMI. Okay. And... Uh, it's uh, the thing I like about that song is that people pretend they don't like money and everybody likes money uh, they don't necessarily need loads of it but the problem with this country is people don't have enough of it um, and uh, you're not allowed to say that you know uh, like I get attacked on Twitter recently I was it was about drug policy stuff and people were going yeah you just want to line your pockets by um, treating people up here let me tell you that uh if people think i'm making loads of money up here it's paying the bills but the laugh of it is that people see it as me trying to make profit out of people's misery and i never understand that because my view of it is is that you know it took a big big push to get doctors involved in treating heroin users in the first place the question is who's going to write those prescriptions who's going to who's going to do the work so if you look at some countries where they can't get manpower or they don't have goodwill towards methadone treatment is there are heroines dying all over the place you know but you always get this kind of criticism but um and i never make any apologies about trying to make a living so why should i you know at the end of the day so but... uh, yeah i like that i like that song it is quite an irreverent sort of uh <laughs> um there's a great line in it um uh i, oh, I can't remember it but uh It's about the nice things in life. You know the way they say the good things in life are free? And I think the the line of that is, is that they're they're nice, he says, but they won't pay the bills. (laughs) So true.
1: It is so true, and I stay with that because that was the one thing really I was really curious about. Because it's not an easy job what you're doing. As in, like there's a lot of jobs out there that aren't easy, but you're day in and day out you're dealing with people's life-threatening situation, or not necessarily from a well, both from a medical point of view, from a mental health point of view. So it's it's a serious stuff. Like every day you're seeing patients, and that can't be easy on you. How do you deal with it, and how? What's your release valve?
0: Well, I like what I do, uh, and that helps. And I'm very interested in this whole phenomenon of addiction. I'm particularly, as you know, interested in drug policy. Um, in terms of uh release, I'm lucky um in that I'm able to detach myself. Um, I don't carry this work home. There'll always be a case that probably hits you more than others uh, but I don't particularly take it home uh, I'm not overly emotional about things um, I I, and I don't mean that in a callous way I just I think if I was to take every case home and, 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 and be thinking about it I think I'd get nowhere and um, I like to exercise I'm not in the same league as Tony Groves by the way doing marathons <laughs> nothing like it but I, 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 I try and exercise um, half an hour here and there and uh, I try and make, look after my mental health. I've got, I'm married, I have three kids. Uh, that's a full-time job in itself. So I'm busy. Um, I have to say, I do find the private work can be, can be trickier sometimes because you are, you are, know, sometimes in here, like tomorrow now will be a big long day for me. It's a lot of kind of one-to-one sort of stuff and uh, it can be just mentally exhausting. Um, but I don't, um, I always think that I can only do so much and uh I always say that to patients. Is people often say, oh, why are you going to cure me? I says, I don't know. I, I don't know what a cure is. I don't think any disease is a cure. Cancer doesn't have a cure. Heart disease doesn't have a cure. Diabetes doesn't have a cure. But we can certainly make it better for you. And after that, it's just about us developing a rapport. And I think, to, to me, um, no matter what qualifications you have, if you don't know how to talk to the human race, um, if you don't have that ability to... Um, communicate with people and care then in medicine anyway you're in the wrong profession you have to care and I do care Um, I might live these lives personally and I've got my own things to deal with but you've got to care and uh, the one thing um, I have seen over the years in relation to particularly methadone treatment or addiction treatment in general is that some of the treatment treats people in in a very derogatory way um, speaks to people in a derogatory way it's as if someone who's addicted doesn't deserve sympathy and I I deplore that type of treatment and don't get me wrong I've I, sometimes in in my the course of my job I've, I've got to get a little bit tough tough sometimes but not much but it's 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 um, you know there will always be cases that can try you a little bit more and be difficult and once upon a time in the addiction services when we were treating methadone we used to have a phenomenon of um Expelling people from treatment because they showed drugs in their urine screen. Now we fought hard to get rid of that. It still happens in some places, but we were get we were getting into situations where people would be threatening us and threatening to burn our car because we were, They were right not to, to burn my car, but they were right. They shouldn't have been threatened, and we challenged that, and we, we were largely winning that battle. But still, patients in in clinics um are treated sometimes not well. And I do a lot of work with human rights um, and uh, service users. I was there today, this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the stories that people relate to us about how they were treated is pretty, pretty horrible. Mm. So I have, I, I, I think if you can't treat your fellow man with respect, you don't have to agree with them all the time they mm-hmm. don't have to agree with you but I think we do have to have respect I heard a great story once Um, do you remember Howard Marks mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's the
1: guy that, that brought the, the, the drugs across from Spain yeah the, he, he had a book head.
0: well Howard Marks uh, tells a story well Peter Hitchens told the story Peter Hitchens who's not one of my favourite people he's blocked me on uh, Twitter <laughs> anyway but he believes cannabis is evil and it should be banned and you should go to jail and all that. but he did a debate once with uh, with Howard Marks. He was very knowledgeable on cannabis in general and stuff, and it was about cannabis and its effects and about the drug laws and all this. And it was in this arena or hall, and it was largely attracted Howard Marks fans. So Peter Hitchens was up against it, and they got on stage and they were just hurling abuse because he he's a bit of a hate figure, Peter Hitchens, to people who like cannabis or like more sensible drug laws. And they were hurling abuse. And then they start throwing things on him. And Peter Hitchens, uh, the guy who was organized says, Peter, I think you better leave. So they're going to let him leave. No debate. And let Howard Marks talk. And everyone was cheering. Peter Hitchens walked down the stairs and said, fair enough. It was hostile. And I said, I'm leaving. Howard Marks got up and walked out with Peter Hitchens. And uh, everyone was going, "Where's, where's Howard Marks gone? So he got on the microphone, he said, you, you all want to know where I'm going. He said, if Peter goes, I go. He said, this is what it's all about. We need to talk about this. You just want him to go so you can hear everything i have got to say about it. as I mightn't agree with him and he mightn't agree with me. He stays or I go. And he stayed and they had a debate. Now, it was a tough one for Peter Hitchens, but I, that was the mark of the man. Now, he wasn't everybody's favourite cup of tea, um, Howard Marks. But it was, it, I, I, I learned some lessons from, from this. And that is that, and people often wonder why do I debate with people on Twitter in that way. As long as you're respectful with me, I'll debate with you. Now, it does take a lot of time, the same thing. And sometimes I do feel I'm going around in circles. I talk about injecting rooms. I talk about, um, you know, drug laws. I talk about tax take on if it was legalized. I talk about, you know, how safe drugs could be because you'd know what you were taking. It could get regulated. We could give safety advice. I give all the sensible stuff. And I, somebody just keeps going, oh, they're terrible junkies. And I go, well, we're done now. So I often say to them, look, um, thanks for debating. And, uh, and it's tough sometimes. You know, It's, it's, it's very, very tough. Um, but there are people that won't do that. Um, I think Tony Tuffin's going to do it. He doesn't have time to do it. and He's dead, right? I mean, I shouldn't be doing it. Mm. And there are a lot of other people that just wouldn't want to invest time in it. Um, but I think we have to do that. And I think Twitter is a very powerful platform. To get your point across, and I think mm. when you have somebody who's talking stuff that they can't back up with any evidence, um, and you have the evidence, um, you need to let let people know because you know that stuff has a reach, um, yeah. and I think you need to get the message out there. But I think we we need to respect people's uh, points of view,
1: um,
0: but but it doesn't work out that way often. A lot of the time, the views aren't respected. There, people get very very angry. You know, very great. it's just my own view. I, th- I I think that the the kind of prohibitionists get angry quicker than the sensible drug policy people. That's just my own sort of sense hey, of. Give me another
1: song. I won't keep you much longer. I know you're under pressure.
0: Um, let me see. Uh, sympathy for the devil. Ah, oh, fabulous, will yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that <laughs> song. Um, and uh, I like that song for a number of reasons. Um, my understanding is that. Uh, it was it was written um, and the line was was amended in that song which said uh, who killed the Kennedy and it was the day after Robert Kennedy got killed so they had to change it to who killed the Kennedys, plural so it was originally Kennedy but it's just a mad song you know, and you know, we talk about the devil. Somebody said something the other day I thought was very interesting, you know, it was this, um, the devil is an intriguing phenomenon because uh, God is so boring. <laughs> the devil is, is interesting. It's very true, actually, in many ways. <laughs>
1: and not agreeing with somebody I noticed uh, you've um, you're quite keen on the old vaping thing mm. and I'll be completely on the yeah. other side I think it's I think it's the evil yeah why well, why do you think vaping is alright and uh, like no the, the reason I'm asking yeah. that question is because you're very keen on evidence based yeah um, and I totally agree with evidence based as opposed yeah. to feelings now I don't have the evidence personally on vaping being bad but I don't know if anybody <laughs> has any Evidence yeah. being good either, yeah. and I'm just worried about um, it.
0: Yeah, the reason I, the reason I'm very keen on vaping is because I'm not very keen on the harms of smoking. Mm. And I really just see. I think if we're measuring vaping, I know people are going on about young people taking mm. vaping. I, my own view is, if they did take up vaping and stayed on vaping for the rest of their life, still be far better off than uh, okay. people who um, who don't. There's no absolutely no question. Um, that vaping is safer than smoking. Uh, of course it's not going to be safe. You're breathing in this vapour and there may be some damage to those. The one thing I would say, vaping has been around for probably about 15 years, 10 years. Ago. We've had a good 10 years in this country of vaping. It's it, The technology has improved. I, I'm not seeing, um, and, and the vast majority of people are using it uh, either in trying to reduce their cigarette use or because they are, are they're off cigarettes. But... Um, I'm not seeing GP surgeries full of vaping illnesses. I'm not seeing uh, hospital beds of vaping illnesses. We had this thing in the states, which has turned out to be, you know, largely uh, THC oil and vitamin E acetate, and in in largely illegal cartridges of thing have caused these illnesses and deaths. Not too many. I mean, you have to remember in Ireland, uh, sixteen people die every day because of cigarettes. Sixteen, right? That's a public health disaster by any by any measure. There's nobody dying from vaping. And people are saying, well, what happens in 10 years' time? I, look, you've got to measure it besides beside smoking. So if somebody switches from vaping, and I've had people vape, and they go to their doctor, they get their lung function tests, they're having less infections. People are saying, oh, what happens if they find out there's going to be cancer in 10 years' time? But, well, okay, fair enough, if, that, if that's... you're worried about but the reality of it is is it's still far better than smoking if whatever the risk is of cancer with vaping it's certainly much much more by by uh, smoking there's no burning tobacco so people love to look at absolute harms rather than relative harm so is you know do we ban bacon right no why because there probably be a black market and, and and it'd be pointless banning it. So people say, no, don't ban bacon even though it causes heart disease. There's lots of things that we do that are, are wrong. But in the case of vaping, I think it offers people who bear in mind have tried every other way mm-hmm. of giving up cigarettes uh, to get away from inhaled burning tobacco. So Anything is better than that. I don't care what you say. And I am very mindful that there could be harms. Yes, there could be. But there are not going to be the harms of smoking because it isn't smoking. So um, I, I, I'm I, very, very much in favour of vaping. I'm worried that we might be moving towards a sort of an Australian kind of thing where they, they start banning it. Even if, even if, say, vaping caused half the number of cancers of smoking, I still wouldn't ban it because... For the same reasons, I wouldn't ban heroin. I wouldn't ban cocaine, and that is that once you put it into the hands of the illegal market, you can't earn. It. There's, there's no, there's no money to be earned out of it, but also it becomes more dangerous. So, you know, vaping shops, if you've ever gone into them, are very nice commercial units. They're nice places. Um, the guys behind the desk are trying to make a living like anybody else, and they're very knowledgeable on the vaping, and they're worried. And then you know, like there's a there's a great picture in in a photograph in, I don't know if it's Minnesota, but they banned uh, uh, flavorings over there, but basically flavorings were the very thing that people liked when they bought them. So there was no business in vaping. So what they did was they should showed a picture in a tobacconists of empty shelves for vaping. and. On the right-hand side was tobacco, Camel, and, and uh, Marlborough, and, and whatever. And that's absurd. I mean, you see, people don't understand that when you ban something, and I think there's, there's great potential in vaping, and, and you know, like all these things, we try and make them safer and make them safer. And safe. We might get to a situation where people can just vape literally literally vapor and nothing else. We could get to that technology. But no, the the view is, particularly in the medical profession, it's evil. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand mm-hmm the unintended consequences. Although, as somebody said to me once, they're not unintended consequences. When do un- When do consequences continue to be unintended when you know they keep happening? <laughs>
1: <laughs> From an addiction point of view, uh, as an addiction expert, uh, is it addictive, vaping well,
0: well Well, it, 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 it is addictive in the sense that uh, it's nicotine, and nicotine people do like to take, and they, they get physically dependent. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. But methadone is addictive. Yeah, sure. Um, but yet it's methadone in the wrong in the wrong circumstances and we've had it can kill you yeah. but we, we it's a remarkably effective drug at reducing injecting and passing you know sharing needles and all the sure. overdose risk
1: listen give me your second last song and I'm gonna ask you one last question and I'll let you go mm-hmm. what you want to play
0: I can't explain by the who <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's great. It sounds like my playlist anyway. <laughs> I like that song. I just love that era. I love that uh, whole '60s epoch. It's just it's class, and uh, I I just you know when you're listening to that song so frequently, you really get to know the lyrics.
1: so just to wind it up um, I was gonna ask you a lot more about growing up and all that but we kind of covered it and I'm, I'm just always very curious how do you get to do what you do and and obviously you're passionate about it you love doing it and mm. um, but it must be frustrating at the same time too, because on one hand you you see the benefit of what you're doing yeah one-on-one on one, the five or six or ten clients are coming in through you and on the other hand you have this brick wall you said, you had a great line, you said, uh, the, the government are uh, are very good at looking like they're about to do something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah so must that must be really frustrating. As much as your passion is, is and it's a business, it is a passion, but it's, it's lovely to be able to do what you want to do. But yeah, you, yeah, the, the yeah. two together, it must be.
0: Yeah, it is frustrating. And, and uh, the one thing I've stopped worrying about is what people, like, the medical profession think of me you know. I, mean, I was did a Matt Cooper thing and says, what the medical profession think they agree with you and I'm always very honest Isn't no I'm on my own <laughs> uh, maybe they do but they don't want to say it um, you see I know that like we're sitting here today you know it's November the 14th 2019 there will be a time um, I don't know this building here when you and I will be gone and drugs will be legal it will happen um, because we're moving closer to that and we're moving close to that because the generation coming through are becoming, maybe it's social media, but they're becoming a lot more informed of the issues. And those very same people will eventually be the tomorrow's politicians. I don't know when it's going to happen, but there will reach a point, I think, I could be wrong, um, where drugs probably will be legalised and everybody will look back um, in, I don't know, global we'll warming, who knows who's going to be here in 150 years' time, but... Um, they'll say, you know, some of you to because you know that those drugs were illegal ones. I said, what do you mean? Well, they had these fellas called dealers, you know, and it's kind of a different phenomenon, you know. It'd be a bit like Al Capone in the 1920s in the US. You, know, you look at that and you think, how could anyone think that was right, you know? Alcohol does kill a lot of people. But, it, you know, as I often make the point, it would kill a lot more people, I could tell you, if it was uh, moonshine we were selling, you know, so... People always say that, you know, the, the cannabis uh, prohibition. So we say, we've already got alcohol and tobacco and they kill loads of people. And my answer to that is also, oh, we make them illegal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's going to stop the harm. It isn't. You make it illegal, you get the harm. And we've seen it, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and so the last thing,
1: as a father, um, ha- like, w- we know the majority of people have used drugs you know there's millions of different uh, Mm. statistics going on but we know one in two has tried some sort of a drug and we can put anything into drugs from alcohol to heroin and whatever and anything in between but as a father how do you direct your kids how do you prepare them for for whatever age they are now they're going to get to an age of uh, of teenagers or maybe they're really teenagers and
0: yeah I, I think my my um my kids probably are, my my kids are 15, um, nearly 12 and 10, and they kind of know the work I do. And, uh, you know, I haven't do talk because my, my son went to his first disco and I, I kind of wanted to do, did he take a drink? And uh, I, I kind of, my kind of view on this is that, uh, um, you know. A lot of the time when, when people take drugs for the first time or they take alcohol for the first time, it's not usually because they want to take them. It's because they're under a little bit of pressure or they want to be cool or they're experimenting or whatever the case is. And I kind of I'd always admire the people that just didn't experiment. They just said, you know, I'm actually enjoying myself. I, kind of, I think it, it is an interesting I, I've for somebody who comes across as very liberal, I'm actually quite conservative in, in relation to my own thing. I've never really, I, I've taken cannabis in the, in the past in a, in, a, in, a, in a party in college and stuff like that. I, I don't smoke. So, you know, the way the Irish take cannabis is uh, with tobacco. So it never really interests me. I've never done illicit drugs. Um, I suffered panic attacks when I was in my early 20s. And I, I thought to myself, the last drug in the world I would need is cocaine, but many of my friends did take a list of drugs, um, but I never took them. And I don't know, I, I always had a, I always had a view that, I, I had this thing that, but I drank a lot in college, I, I drank far too, I often say that if my 23-year-old self is you know, sitting in that seat over there, I'd diagnose them with a with an alcohol problem but it didn't seem that way mm. uh, but I never did a list of drugs and one of the reasons I never did a list of drugs is for the very reason I do this campaigning and that is that I never liked the idea of taking something that you don't know what's in it and I suppose that's one of the reasons why although I took far more alcohol than was good for me I kind of knew what was in it mm. um, and I like that concept of knowing what's in it mm. and I and I, and, and I don't know where that common sense came from but in relation to my kids um, there's only one thing I'd ever ask my kids and um, is that, that, that we could have uh, open dialogue. And I know it's difficult with kids because they're afraid and stuff like that. And I've seen so many cases where parents were just completely in the dark and their kids went down a road where they, they ended up overdosing. They would no idea or else they had their head in the sand. So I'd like open dialogue with my kids. Uh, I hope they don't do illicit drugs. I often say though, people say, oh, you say that you'd like drugs legalised. What about your own kids? And I said, Well, I'd prefer my kid if he was using drugs to go to a licensed premises because there's I wouldn't have drug dealers come into my door looking for money. And the number of patients I have here where there's deaths of thing, you don't get deaths. There's no alcohol deaths or tobacco deaths. You know, licensed premises want money. You don't have money, you don't get the, the goods. Um so, in many ways, licensed premises actually sometimes are a deterrent for people because I, I work in many disadvantaged communities where there's huge drug debt. And with drug debt comes drug dealing. And with drug dealing comes, pr- you know, people who get involved in dealing, who are doing it to feed their own habit, they don't know what they're getting into. They usually end up in jail. Yeah. So it's ugly, you know.
1: Yeah, I think I you think should say that the, the safest way to be safer from harm is not to do drugs, basically. That's should that's be.
0: Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it does raise another thing. I mean, you know... I think it'd be great if we lived in a world where, like alcohol is a horrible drug really at, at, at the level we do it in Ireland. It's a great drug if you respect it to be able to go out and have a drink. But a lot of people don't do that. And I did, I did that myself in my 20s where I was drinking far too much shots and, you know, pints and all sorts of things. And uh, we don't need to drink that much. You know, we, we seem to overdo it. Um, wh- why do we need to drink at all? Why do we need to take drugs at all? I, I don't know. But a lot of people are taking drugs for other reasons and I don't think, I, I think as a as a, as a a society I don't, I don't think we're, we're nice to each other, as nice as we should be. There's a lot of stresses in this country mm. and I think if we were a lot nicer people would probably not drift into drug addiction and, you know, there's a huge inequality. Tony goes on about it a lot, uh, Tony Groves, about the sort of class inequality in terms of, I, I work in, in those services. Um and and that people literally do not have any tangible, uh, any tangible comfort in their life. They don't even have a roof over their head, and they're and and again they've got to rob to keep a heroin habit going. It's a horrible existence, and yet people are, people on Twitter are horrible towards them.
1: That's why I was very keen to talk to you because I I know you you you're often on radio and so on, but I think it was important to give it a good amount of time to really get out as much as possible. So. Couple of words of wisdom before I go. What's the quote that gets you up in the morning?
0: Um, don't take it all too serious.
1: <laughs> That's good.
0: <laughs> and what's
1: the last song we're going to play? Um,
0: the last song we're going to play today is She Really Got Me by the Kings. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> now, <laughs> Dr. Gareth McGermott, thanks so
1: many for your time. Nice, really thanks. appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's lovely to talk to
0: you.